0: Good morning, La Jolla Community Church. I would like to invite you to a very fun event that's coming up. It's our Harvest Festival. It is Saturday, October 30th from 3 to 5. There will be a lot of fun things for the kids to do. There's games and crafts, a mega slide, a scary spider cave. Lots of fun things. You can wear your family-friendly costume if you would like and just invite all of your friends to come join us. This is a free event but we are working with the San Diego Food Bank because there's such a need here in San Diego. So please bring one, three, 10 cans or boxes of food and put it in the red barrel and let's support the San Diego Food Bank and our community. We'll see you there. And did you know our youth ministry meets twice a week? On Tuesdays, students from sixth to 12th grade are invited to a Bible study from 6 30 to 8 and there's dinner it's only five dollars but if you bring a friend then it's free for both of you and on wednesdays students are invited back for game night and it's a night full of games and competitions and super fun and again there's dinner again it's five dollars but again if you bring a friend you get in for free both these youth ministry events are great opportunities for people to connect with friends and grow stronger in their faith. So if you are a student from sixth to 12th grade, please come and join us and bring all your friends. You're gonna have a great time with Ryan and his team. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to La Jolla Community Church. At this time, you're invited to stand if you're able as we enter into worship.
1: You must...
2: To approach your glorious throne in the name of our Redeemer and coming King Jesus. We are so encouraged to know that you are willing to listen to our voices as we seek your Spirit's power to help us to be single minded in proclaiming your kingdom gospel among all the peoples of the earth. Please bring people seeking to know more about you to us that we may witness to them about Jesus. We pray your forgiveness for things that we might do that are not in accord with your will. We ask that you help us to always realize that we are ambassadors for your son, Jesus, and that people judge you, they may judge you, based on our actions. So please help us to be resolute in setting a good example before onlookers, showing that being a follower of Jesus makes us good neighbors. We ask that you help those in need To uh, due to the employment issues and uncertainties that plague us at this time. Please help those in charge to get control of this horrible disease that has been threatening us for over a year now. It is our wish that the world may, will see that these adversities we now are experiencing are a testimony to the need for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you open our hearts to the sermon today and that it might provide us with a message that will strengthen our faith and hope in the second coming of our Lord Jesus, King Jesus, and your kingdom to follow. We are asking and seeking your blessing on this community of believers and are confident that we will find peaceful comfort in the promise that Lord Jesus is here now among us. It is in his name that we ask this prayer. Amen.
3: Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, La Jolla Community Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, we love in this nice, cool transition. I love this kind of weather when it starts to get a little cool, but it's not quite super rainy yet. It's my favorite kind of weather of the year. Well, welcome, welcome. My name is Ryan Sylvia. I am the Director of Student Ministries here at La Jolla Community Church, and I want to thank you so much for joining us on this wonderful, wonderful Sunday morning. I would love to bring your attention on the bulletin you should have received on your way in. Our fun little new design, if you notice that baby folds right in half, and if you want to tear that top half off, this is a little invitation. I would love that you give this to somebody in your neighborhood, a friend, a family member, a neighbor, somebody that you know that would love to come to our church and be a part of some of the wonderful things that are going on here at La Jolla Community Church. And this week in particular, we would hope that you would invite them to our Harvest Fest coming up this weekend on Saturday. Um, We would love this opportunity just to get together as a community, but also to bless the San Diego Food Bank. So if you would like to be a part of that, please give this card to somebody that you know, somebody you would love to invite, um, to bring some food and to bless our community. But the bottom half of that card, uh, I would love to bring your attention to. That first side says, get connected with us. This is our connect card. This is how we get you engaged plugged in and involved in some of the wonderful ministries that are going on here at La Jolla Community Church. So if there was something that you would like to be involved in or this is your first Sunday, we would love to have you take a moment, fill out that Connect card, let us get you involved, plugged in, and just engaged in some of the fun ministries we've got going on here at La Jolla Community Church. And on the back side, you'll notice it says, let us pray for you. We at La Jolla Community Church believe in the power of prayer. We believe in coming together, lifting each other up, and encouraging each other in the Word and in the Lord. So if you've got something difficult that's going on in your life, you need a little extra support, a little extra extra love this week, just a little extra guidance. Take a moment, fill that out. Let us know how we can support you, pray for you, and love on you. Or maybe you've got something great and wonderful going on in your life. Let us know how we can praise God with you and celebrate in the great things that he's doing in our lives. Well, that Connect card along with the offering envelopes, which should be in the uh, seat backs directly in front of you, those can go in the baskets on your way out. And then welcome to everybody in the Welcome Center. There is a box mounted on the wall in the Welcome Center as well as in the Sanctuary where you can drop, op- drop off your offering envelopes. Well, thank you so much for coming, and I would love to invite Pastor Steve up to lead us in a message. Thank you so much. Brian.
4: Well, oh gosh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, We're talking about thriving and growing this fall, and we're talking about thriving and growing because that's why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world so that we could thrive and grow, not languish, and have a sense of uh, meaninglessness in life. He came so that we would be alive. He said he came to give us life in all its fullness, and so that's what we're doing. We're taking a deep dive in what it looks like to thrive and grow. And some of these words that we've, we've looked at, you'd say, well, yeah, that sounds like a thrive and grow word. Others, not so much. And so we're unpacking these words, uh, words that maybe you don't think about uh, normally. They're not usually used in a religious sense, a uh, Christian sense, a, a spiritual sense. But they're, they're absolutely essential to getting at this notion of being so transformed by the living presence of God, spirit of the living God, right? Uh, that we would then be able to find a way to focus ourselves uh, around that process of being transformed by the living God. So today we're talking about a single-mindedness. What comes to your mind when you hear that word single-mindedness? I'll wait about a half hour as you process it and jot down any notes you might want to make. Perhaps the word that comes to mind would be, ooh, single-mindedness. Maybe that's simple-mindedness. You don't have much going on. You can just think about one thing. You're like the rain man. Uh, You're like that person who um, is fixated, uh, obsessed on one particular thought. Uh, Perhaps maybe you think, oh, hmm, let's see, single-mindedness, oh, closed-mindedness. Yeah, that that comes comes, uh, to mind. No, hmm, single-mindedness, I don't know. Uh, You do know in a lot of ways though, because single-minded people get a lot done. Why? Because they have a purpose in life and they focus. Being single-minded is about focus. Just let that sink in. When you've been most engaged in, in what um, that famous professor from Stanford, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. That's a, if you try to spell that, forget it. Uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, he, he created a whole theory called flow. And what flow is about is capturing that capacity to focus. Um, There's another uh, great book that came out uh, from a guy who I think got his doctorate at Stanford. It's about uh, deep, deep diving into work, deep work. And it's all about focus. Pretty much when you look at the most effective people in the world, they are focused people. Now, if they're socially awkward, they're focused in a way that's obnoxious. Uh, they they run over people. They they're they're unaware of people around them. Uh, perhaps you've met people who are so extremely narcissistic that if you were to say to them, you know, you are, you really ought to think about other people, and they'd say, what other people? <laughs> but single-minded people are really really good. And now in a fallen world, in a world that is 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 disconnected from God, and that God is transforming back into the community He created us to be, uh, in a fallen world, that can be good or bad, right? Uh, Hitler was extremely single-minded. Nothing could get him off of his thing. Uh, In his most private moments with his closest coterie of of generals, uh, he would bring them to this beautiful place in in the uh, Austrian Alps, and he would uh, invite them. Of course, it was compulsory. It was a summons, not an invitation. To spend a long evening with him. And it was scintillating because you'd get for several hours to hear Hitler talk about Hitler, and his dream, uh, et, cetera, et cetera, And eventually Eva Braun would, would, would sidle over to Hitler, apparently, and whisper something in his ear and, and toddle off somewhere else in the castle. And a few minutes later, Hitler would go, oh, look at time, I've got to go. At that point, the party started. That's when all the generals said, oh, thank goodness, we can be normal and actually interact with each other. Single-mindedness uh, can be deadly if you're Hitler. Uh, It can be disruptive if you're a hacker. Hackers are single-minded. They are so focused on all those things that could be possible weaknesses in the way that your system is configured, the way you use your system. In a more heartbreaking sense, think about junkies, addicts of every stripe, intensely single-minded. My next fix so we can, make a, we can make a case on the good and the bad for single-mindedness. But for our purposes, by single-minded, we mean having clarity regarding our God-given purpose in life. Uh, clarity uh, in our God-given purpose in life. Uh, let me give one more example before I move into that. Uh, it, this sounds like counterintuitive and, and uh, um, like you should, they just should, shouldn't go together. Single-mindedness in marriage. Single-mindedness is essential for marriage. You think, wait, wait, single-mindedness is essential for marriage? Wouldn't single-mindedness be more consistent with being single? No. If you're not single-minded in marriage, you will be single soon. (laughs) If you're not single-minded, not as as every waking moment you're focusing on your spouse, but rather if you're not single-minded about that commitment uh, and having heard endless stories about people's lack of single-mindedness in marriage, uh, and, and, and as have you, and, and family members and friends, you realize a heartbreak not only for those two people in the marriage, but for the children, for the people who have been part of their distraction from being single-minded and the ripple effect of that. And so what's happened is somebody has lost their sense of the purpose of their marriage. Not to be obsessed and fixated on somebody, but to be single-mindedly committed to loving and cherishing them face-to-face, face, and then shoulder-to-shoulder, shoulder, single-mindedly looking out at the world and saying, what do you think God wants us to do together? Most people in marriage, uh, even Christians, do not have a sense of what is our common mission in our marriage. They're kind of single-minded in that, well, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, but there's no sense of, hey, what is our mission as a couple, as a family? Which is not to say it's the same mission, but have we agreed on what our mission is? We're single-minded on, on fulfilling this, and in supporting each other in our aspect, our, our particular sense of calling in this mission. You see that Christian marriage isn't two people living for one another. It's two people living together in Christ to serve Christ. In interesting different ways, because they have different personalities and different interesting gifts and all that. We talked about shape, uh, I think, last week. So when we talk about single-minded, we're, having, we're talking about having clarity regarding our God-given purpose in life. And without that, that clarity, we're confused. Uh, we're neutralized. Uh, we're kind of like the donkey that died between two bales of hay. Not sure which one to eat from. And so in, in, in that point of prolonged indecision, uh, perished so until you know your purpose, and we talked, like I said, about that when we talked about shape, go back and listen to some of these previous messages. Uh, they, will, they will inspire you, energize you, and possibly give you a really good night's sleep. Um, so, I, you know, depending on <laughs> how you listen to messages and what they mean to you. I love the way that Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 3. We talked about this last spring. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We die to ourselves when we come alive in Christ. Earthly things aren't less important. They just don't make sense anymore until we understand what God's purposes are. And once we understand God's purposes, once He has our heart and our mind, single-mindedly, as we look at life around us and that that, that we're experiencing on earth, it becomes significant. If we start with earth, we'll never understand what's going on in heaven and what God did to bring heaven to earth. And so he goes on to say, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. We're going to come back to this in a moment, but essentially, godly single-mindedness is focusing on what's most important in life. And it's not your job. And it's not your spouse, it's not your children, it's not your health. That sounds shocking. That's, that's heresy in American culture. I just said something that would infuriate pretty much anybody. who says, I identify with the American culture. I certainly identify with American culture. But if our, if our identity isn't absolutely focused on Christ, our culture will become an idol. If your primary focus, the most important thing in your life is your spouse, you will ruin the marriage. If your most important possession and fixation in life is your children, you will ruin your children. If the most important commitment you can think to make is to your job, your job will be ruined as will you. You see where this is going? Because you don't have what it takes to sustain that kind of commitment, nor do the things you're giving that commitment to have have what it takes to bear that burden of fulfilling all your deepest needs. And so all those things are what we'd call penultimate. They're not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing, starting from the top and moving from that, is God himself. And we'll get to that in a few moments as well. So just hold this in your mind. Godly single-mindedness is focusing on what's most important in life. Uh, Jesus, talking to his disciples, said it this way. You can see this in Mark 8. I don't think we have a slide for this one. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, everything they've ever wanted and pursued? prepared for, worked for, prayed for, yet forfeit their soul. Expect their soul to be satisfied with all these penultimate things. He says, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now that I've lost my soul to whatever, how do I get it back? Because if you ask a person, I want my soul back, they say, I never took your soul. If you squandered it in in pursuit of me, don't blame me. We're not having a sense of who you are. So how do we determine what's important? God's Word. I mean, it sounds so simple. It sounds trite, sounds like a cliche. The Word of God. The Word of God, yeah, because it's living and active. It's not just a static thing printed on a page, inscribed on a parchment, even committed to memory. It's living and active. The writer of Hebrews says, it, James says, it cuts right to the very heart of us. It gets right into the core of us and sorts things out. I love the way David says it in Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. It goes on forever, it seems. And it's, it's based around the, the Hebrew alphabet. And under every letter, it, it, it starts with that letter and then it, it, it goes on. It's fantastic. It's right in the center of the whole Bible, Psalm 119. And in Psalm 119, verse 105, it says this, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. He illuminates uh, our way, the internal way of of understanding who we are, thriving and growing as we develop as people, uh, the way around us. How do I make sense of this world? How do I navigate through opportunities and dangers and problems? Gifts, responsibilities, How do I embrace the most wonderful times? How do I embrace the most heartbreaking times? Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. So he is our reference for living in the moment because the word is personified in Christ. Jesus Christ is the word of God. He's our reference for living in the moment, drawing on his eternal truth and wisdom. See, this is what happens when you're trying to navigate on land or on water. Where are you and where do you want to go? And then what are the fixed points that allow you to create a reference for getting there? How do you triangulate to that place? If you don't know where you are and you don't know where you want to go, that's called being lost. It's no fun being lost. So our life is formed in Christ through, let me give you three super fancy words. Our life in Christ, I'm using these on purpose. Our life in Christ is formed through Kronos, Kairos, and the Eschaton. And that's all I want to say about that. So let's move on. Um, you know chronos because it's chronology, the chronograph. It's about the minutes, days, weeks, months, years, decades of your life. We understand that we live in time. And we want to seize the moment in that time. We just don't want to go through time. We want to say, What's the, how do I sort it out? What's the most important thing? Uh, what are the most precious things? How do I go through a day and not get to the end of it and go, oh, I missed the most important thing? And so that's what Kairos is. Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, is saying seize the moment. It's understand this is the right time. Timing is everything, right? Uh, Ask any comedian. Kronos and Kairos together, how do we manage time? And then eschaton is just a fancy word. It's just a simple Greek word, actually. It just means last. It means final. And so the eschaton is a sense that history goes somewhere, our life doesn't go on forever the way it is. Something is going to happen. There's a big event. There's a big transition. There's a flexion point. There have been others. You know, Jesus' incarnation, God coming into the world, that was an eschatological, they say, eschatological. That was, t- that was toward God fulfilling his purpose. Uh, Christ giving us the Holy Spirit was an eschatological moment, etc., etc. And so at some point, when we talk about the return of Christ in glory, a new heaven and a new earth, that's the eschaton. But embedded in the eschaton is this notion that our decisions are critical. Our decisions are critical. Today's Kronos, Kairos, supported and shaped decisions are critical. So Eschatology is not just something's going to happen out in the future. We don't know when. It's something is happening in the present that shapes and forms the future. The future isn't just something we arrive at one day. The future is something we're creating every day. And that God is creating in us every day. Because on that day, whenever it happens, however it happens, in our generation or generations hence, when Jesus returns, we're going to say, welcome back. If we haven't been focusing on him, and we haven't been single-minded for him, we'll say, here I am, and I'll say, who are you? I I don't know you. Not because he's indifferent or callous or hard-hearted toward us. He just doesn't know us. Because we haven't given, us, given him his heart, uh, our heart and our mind. And so this simply means that we live in the present moment. We plan wisely. Planning matters. Planning counts. You can still live fully today and yet plan as part of today. And our choices matter. Single-mindedness is really life management. It's how do I live my life? Talking about why well, I want to live my life fully. That's really another way of saying I want to manage my life well. Now, if you try to quantify your life, if your life is reduced to a bunch of lists, uh, that gets old in a hurry. If you try to reduce anybody else's life, honey, it's Saturday, here's your list. And if that honey is 8 years old or 18 or 48, the list does not go down well. Unless it has things like leisure, rest, hopefully something to do with the water and waves or a fly rod or a motorcycle or something, right? Right? It's prioritizing our values in real time. So single-mindedness, I said earlier, it's focusing on what's important. And we do that by prioritizing our values. What you value needs to have highest priority. Hey, when that person asked you that question, why did you say that and not the truth? I thought truth was a high value of yours. Well, it really is, but so is keeping my job or making my friend still like me. Ah, oh, so you didn't prioritize your values in that situation. And now you might be saying this in a kind or funny way to your friend but you're saying, I'm not judging, I'm just curious why, if this is a value, value is something that is so essential for life, without it, life makes no sense or has no satisfying component. If you have compromised that value, what? What's left? Oh, I got a job. My friends still like me. What friends? What job? You're walking on eggshells everywhere you go. You start prioritizing your values, Jesus said, learn to say yes and learn to say no. And when you start prioritizing your values, you will lose the friends that need to be lost. You'll change the job that needs to be changed. Over time, what happens when people say yes and no to the highest values? People say, I take them very seriously. I respect them. What politicians, and I don't care what perspective you're coming from, in your world, in your political world, what politicians do you listen to If anybody with a last name beginning with B says it, you probably go, I don't know. I'm kidding. But if somebody that you don't trust starts pontificating on something, economically, socially, whatever, you're going, yeah, right. I'm going to see what so-and-so has to say. Isn't this true? I mean, you might do it through your favorite columnist. Unless they check with Peggy Noonan, it doesn't count. Uh, Somebody this week said to me, I wish Charles Krauthammer was still around, you know. Lance Morrow is still writing. Somebody else might say my favorite liberal pundit is so-and-so, and and I miss them desperately. Patrick Moynihan, the great Democrat uh, from New England, had brilliant things to say about racial issues. The soft racism of low expectations was one of his great lines. He did the most profound epic study on racism in America, and it was that we weren't empowering people. We were disempowering people. And if we empower people, they always rise to the occasion. Why? Because that's the highest value. Have a sense of personal responsibility and agency as a human being. So you get where this goes. So how do you do that? Um, One, Maybe uh, you've heard of this uh, matrix, the Eisenhower matrix. You know, Eisenhower was a brilliant manager. Yes, he was the great general of World War II, but it was because he was really a good manager. And when, as president, the four years he was president, he established what came to be known as the Eisenhower Matrix, and a guy named Stephen Covey 30 years ago picked up on it and made it more popular. It's simply that thing you've heard before, and I mentioned it a few weeks ago, urgent versus important. Not versus, but urgent and important. It goes like this. Something that is important and urgent is a high-value, time-sensitive thing related to people and projects and even problems. I got to do with this right now. It's a do this now moment. Urgent and important is do this now. Can't put this off. Important but not urgent is still a significant thing because it's important. It's something that is important to me and that I'm I'm responsible for. Without me, this won't get done. But it's not urgent. And that would include things like like timely planning, preparing, peopling, spending time with people, planning what's coming next, working on the thing you're going to be presenting. Solving the problem you've been asked to solve. It doesn't happen in a second. It might take several days or weeks or whatever. That's a do this continuously thing. And then you allow those urgent things to break in because they're very selective and few. The third category would be not important but urgent. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Hey, I care about this thing, but I I can't take the time away from these other commitments. It's important but not for me. And I get this person's urgency. Oh, I'll ask somebody else to do it. I'll delegate it. Hey, do you mind, this, this person needs a Habitat build. Would you mind doing that, John? He goes, yeah, sure. It's I do every week. It's part of, my, part of my important urgent, right? And so what happens is instead of dumping on people, oh, you don't have much going on. You do this. You're saying, who's the right person to really do this, not me? And the final category, of course, is not important, not urgent, and that's called Delete. Delete. I know you love Instagram, delete, give yourself a, an Instagram budget. I'll spend 30 seconds on all the pictures I'm going to look at, because otherwise I'll be going through so-and-so's Instagram feed, so-and-so, so-and-so's Instagram feed, the feed from their feed, oh, look at those kittens, who knew kittens could do that, you know? Next thing you know, you're looking at cats for an hour. You know your life is pretty much over at that point. Okay, so those are the categories for managing your life. But see, we do this under the highest value of Lord, you are the one I want to serve. Uh, But that requires some wisdom spiritually. How do we gain that wisdom? Okay, so I'm unpacking some things here. You might feel like this is too complicated, too many moving parts. I'm sorry, but that's what we do when we we get together. You have 130 hours of TV. You've got one 35-minute shot with me. So I'm going to give you some data that you can unpack all week, right? So I ask you this question. Where are you right now in your spiritual journey, and where is it taking you? I'm getting a little personal here. Where are you in your spiritual journey? Well, I don't like to put myself in a box or category. Of course not. I wouldn't either. I'm not. I'm simply saying, in the process of living out your your spiritual life, your walk with Jesus, where are you? Do you have any idea? My favorite part of a backpack trip, two favorite parts, getting out of the car, looking at where we're going to go. Getting into the car going, thank God I survived where we've just been. And you might like all the stuff that happens in between, you know. There's just enough of that to make several weeks later or several months later you think, I think I'll go back and do it again. But where are you in the journey? Uh, And here's, let me give you four four ways that people, not me, but four people have described, uh, people uh, have generally um, sorted themselves out in four categories. And then this has been documented. So would you describe yourself as exploring Christ? That's one way to describe a person in their journey. Are you exploring Christ? Maybe today you're exploring Christ. That is, you're curious and you're open. Hey, my friend invited me to church. Or I've been thinking about Jesus and I'm actually going to do something now to figure out, is there anything to this Jesus thing? That is, you believe in God. You wouldn't say, I'm actually an agnostic or an atheist. Maybe you are, but you say, I'm, but I'm, I'm kind of moving beyond that to thinking that maybe Jesus has something to do with this, this question. What's the meaning of life? But you're undecided about, about Jesus Christ's role in your life. So you're exploring Christ. That's one way to describe yourself in the journey. Now, um, it's, not, it's not like a fixed thing. I, yeah, I'll be exploring Christ for two weeks, and then... It's just, it could go on for days, months, years. The second one uh, that people have described themselves in is a growing in Christ. That would be leaning in and learning. You know, I was exploring Christ, and finally somebody told me what it meant to accept Christ, to believe in Jesus, to begin this relationship with him. I've done that, and now they've given me this Bible to read, and they've invited me to this group, and we talk about Jesus. I'm going to community Bible study, or I'm... I'm, I'm in this online thing, learning, and so I'm leaning in and learning stuff, and I'm really liking it. I just don't know much, and so all the numbers and in the, in the, in the chapters and things, I, I'm sorting that out, and, and, and I don't know, did Moses and Peter travel together, or was that just, you know, and so you're sorting it all out, but you're growing. You've begun a personal relationship with Christ. You're learning what that means. You want to know more, and you want now to be able to articulate your faith. When I was just first growing in Christ, I was a wizard at quoting the Bible, People go, you're amazing how you know those verses. And I would constantly say, these are the only two verses I know. And when all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. So somebody would say, you know, gosh, this, blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, that reminds me of, blah, blah, you know. And they go, wow, it's a genius, you know. I've been a Christian for 30 years. I don't know that many verses. But remember, it's two. Either I'm awesome or you're really lazy if I know two more than you. <laughs> the third category would be Uh, describing yourself as being committed to Christ. Hey, I've been growing, I've been at this a long time, I'm in a life group, you know, I I give, I I serve, I do different things. I'm a Christian. And and they might just say it like that. I'm a Christian. Like that settles everything. Uh, And as you talk to that person, this is not a judgmental thing, just an observational thing. If you talk to them and you said, so how does this influence your decisions? And you press them a little bit, and you find out that, At some point, they're going, well, if it's good for me, it might be what God wants me to do. If it doesn't get me in an awkward situation socially, it might be what God wants me to do. If it doesn't cost me more money or time, it might be what God wants me to do. And really, it's it's almost like they're saying, I'm a Christian, but... And if you said to them, "Um, how does the eschaton shape the way you're making decisions and living your life? They go, "Uh, eschaton. I'm on Slack uh, instant messaging, eschaton—is that the new one? I, I just have not seen eschaton. I, no, it's not a software program. It's it, you know, uh, it's the end of history. It's the end of time. It's where everything is going. Do you look at where everything is going and say, "How am I making decisions that reflect where everything is going?" Like Schindler—if you ever saw the movie Schindler's List—at the end of the movie, when he has been buying people out of out of. You know, the, the prisoner of war camps are paying for ways to get them out of harm's way. But he's doing it tentatively, kind of protecting his, his perch and his own stuff. And at the end of the movie, all of a sudden he realizes, oh, 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 I, I, it, this, car, this car, this car could have bought 100 people their freedom. This watch, 10 people, this ring. He starts realizing all the opportunities he lost. So there's lots of folks who would say, I'm a Christian. And I wouldn't challenge you. i said, say, yeah, of course you are. You, you, know, you have the assurance of salvation. But you're kind of mailing it in, in that it's a set thing. It's now quickly becoming a cultural thing. It's now quickly becoming a wallpaper. It might just be very vital. It might be the, 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 this place where you're saying, I've really got my full stride now. And the fourth category would be where people say, you know, I, I guess I'd have to save my life is.'" I, I don't understand my life apart from Christ. I can't imagine my life without Christ. That's called Christ-centered. It's not a, the ultimate upgrade to fly first class. Uh, or I've just received the trophy for being Christ-centered. You can be five years old and be Christ-centered. It's this sense of abandon that everything I am is about the Lord. Now you're not disconnected from all the normal things in life. It's just that you have that in the, a really clear priority. You don't do that that might be dangerous well yeah that there's children there and 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 god's put it on my heart to go where they are you get where this goes it's not a i'm awesome and you're not it's that i just am learning that until i trust him and think about him and process my decisions through him and when i see myself getting off track and doing things i know don't honor him or bless people i repent And I invite people to hold me accountable, not as as in catching me doing something wrong, but but calling me back to crazy things I might think or do. That's Christ-centered. That's single-minded. That's a powerful, powerful place to live because you feel just like you're being vulnerable. What's the power of that? The power is that God is working in you and through you. The power is that God has your attention. The power isn't in you. I'm so powerful. Usually, Christ-centered people would say, man, I just feel like every day, uh, but for Christ, I don't know what would happen. And, and you're thinking, wow, this! I know this person is confident. I know they're accomplished. I know they know stuff, and they know how to figure stuff out. I know they're very responsible, and yet they have this vulnerability about them that is really winsome. It's that they're open. Well, Lord, this has been what we've been doing. What, 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 now? What at this point in my life? Would you describe yourself as exploring Christ, growing in Christ, committed to Christ, Christ-centered? The funny thing is, when you, if you, are, you wouldn't probably say Christ-centered, but if you are Christ-centered, you'd say, "Yeah, but I'm still exploring Christ. I keep learning new things, right? And I'm still growing. I realized I, I knew that one time, and I've completely forgotten it. Yeah, and and I can say I'm committed. I'm a Christian." the stability of my life, yes. It's all embedded in that. So why does this matter? Because single-mindedness requires godly wisdom. You can't get godly wisdom without God. (laughs) If God isn't your first priority, you'll not get godly wisdom. You'll get what Job got from his friends. Well, I think we don't need more of what I think. We need more of, well, I think what the word of God says and as, as I've seen God work in situations, I've seen this be the way to approach it and the usual outcome, right? You see where this goes? It's God-focused. It's Christ-centered. It's biblically based. It's human-focused. It's real-world-based, right? It's got all those elements that make it absolutely compelling. So it isn't about balancing life's demands. Wean yourself from that thinking. I can I. I can almost guarantee, if you ask anybody you know about balancing life's demands, they'll go off on a thing of, oh, yeah, I'm trying to balance life's demands, and, and then you can just stop and say, have you ever thought of just throwing out life's demands and making them earn their, their rent in your head? Balancing life's demands is not our goal in life. That's a fool's errand. Why? Because you don't get to choose the demands. And you have no way to evaluate those demands. They're just demands. Everything is urgent, and none of it is important. See, it isn't balancing life's demands, it's discerning their meaning and value. Here's what that looks like the daily demands of life are not all equal, and they're not all edifying. This is why people are willing to say, I won't deny Jesus even though I might die. Are you crazy? What about your family? I would rather have my family's legacy of me be that he did not deny Christ. Because then everybody in my family, as much as they were in grief and loss and confusion about what happened and why it happened, they say, but you know what? My dad, my grandfather, my mom, my grandmother, my great-grandmother would never deny Christ and it cost her her life. I want to be that kind of person. You see the legacy in that? Our choices matter. We must prioritize how we invest our emotional, our social, our intellectual capital. It's not like we go out of our way to challenge everybody and say, I'm going to be a martyr. It's that we say, I don't balance life's demands. I prioritize my highest values. And in the face of life's demands, they sort themselves out very quickly. Yeah, but if you just do this thing on the side, you're going to make a million dollars more this year. Right. Let me do the math on that. Is my losing my soul worth a million dollars? No, a million one maybe, but no. Right. Ask yourself: Is Jesus my highest allegiance? Do I live to impress people or serve them? Is my primary motivator fear or faith? Do I hedge my trust in God? I know God says this. His word says this. But really, this would be a really just one-time good thing. Hey, Moses has gone up on the mountain, let's just take all the gold we have and make it into a golden calf. It would be awesome. It's called art. It'll be inspiring. We have a great time. And when Moses gets back, we can get back on track with, no, it doesn't work that way. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples about single-mindedness in Luke 9. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. Ooh, the eschaton. And the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Here's what Jesus said to his culture about single-mindedness. a little bit longer passage, bear with me, out of the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break it and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break it and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be, will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, that is what you're focused on is unhealthy. Your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. And by the way, money here isn't just literally money. It's, it's wealth. It's security that comes with wealth. It's all the things that money stands for. Power, influence, security, prestige, whatever. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not not sow or reap or soar away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. This is not a diatribe against great design in fashion, architecture. There's an elegance in the universe because God created it. It There's a beauty. You go to a aquarium, you don't go, these scientists are awesome. Look at that fish you see, I'm so glad somebody built this aquarium so I could see that beautiful fish. Who made it? And as the scientists shuffle go, I don't know, it's an evolutionary thing. Okay, So you're saying you didn't make it. Right. Why don't, until we figure it out, why don't we give God full credit for having made it? God made it, and we get to look at it, and it's awesome. So design is absolutely, unapologetically, a core part of our humanity. Beauty and art and music and creativity. God gave the direction for building the temple that Solomon built. Solomon didn't build and say, God, here's your temple. God said, this is what my temple will look like, and here's the purpose it will serve. And when it stopped serving his purpose, what did he he do to the temple? He destroyed it. So you see, this is not a diatribe against beauty, fashion, food, anything. There's no discontinuity between spending your time out in the middle of some God-forsaken place, bringing God's sake to people. You're staying in a funky little shack while you're, you know, risking all kinds of danger. And then at another point, you're sitting in some beautiful restaurant or some resort reflecting on life. There's no discontinuity between that. Don't feel guilty going to the Habitat building and going back to your beautiful home. But ask yourself, what is the cost of this beautiful home? Does all my effort go into supporting it or does this simply serve as a base for me to do my thing? Years ago, a guy who gets, when he gets uptight, he buys himself new cars. The cars he buys all begin with F. And, and if you're not in good shape, you can't get down into these cars. <laughs> and so he, he called me up and we were talking. He said, Yeah, I said, How are you doing? He said, oh, I'm just so stressed. I'm going to buy, a, I'm, in fact, I'm going out today and to buy a new Ferrari. I said, Really? You're stressed? And that immediately goes to you, you're going to buy a new Ferrari. He starts laughing. He said, I know, I know. He said, is, is it okay to go buy a new car? I said, Yeah, of course it is. For whom? He starts laughing. He goes, what do you mean? I said, for whom are you buying the car? He goes, oh, man. I said, yeah, are you buying yourself a car? Why? Because you're stressed? How will that reduce your stress? Once your wife sees it, you'll have more stress. (laughs) Because she'll say, we already have several of those. So it's an extreme example. It's a crazy example because that's not most people's option. But you see, that's what it looks like when you enlarge every option you have. If I just do this, I just don't do that. It does not work. Can any of you, by worrying at a single hour to your life, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow, they do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like uh, one of those was not just like one of those. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans went after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom. This is the single-mindedness part of this whole message. And his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. They're not irrelevant and unimportant necessarily. They're just not urgent. They're penultimate. They're secondary. They come later, if at all. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So that was Jesus speaking to his disciples. That was Jesus speaking to thousands of people that represented his culture. And and let me finish with this. Here's how the early church understood single-mindedness. This is from Hebrews. Therefore... And he's just gone through this whole description of all these people who've done amazing things by faith. Some of them never actually got resolved or realized. They they did it by faith, even though they never achieved it. This this incredible description in the, I'd call it the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11, leads into chapter 12. And so in chapter 12, the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing, here's the single-mindedness word, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the worldview that that describes single-mindedness. I'm seeing everything from the the lens of God's kingdom. God's abiding presence in this world, his creation of it, his care for it, his redemption of it, and his reconstruction of it. That is what fills my thoughts, fills my heart, pulls me out of my funk, gets me off my self-centeredness, gets me off trying to please people and puts me really squarely where he wants me to be, seeing my life as a gift from him. It allows me then to do all those other things that I've been created to do and called to do. And that's why then we can read widely. We can embrace new experiences. We can cultivate a sense of wonder and curiosity in all we do because God made us to experience life fully. I would love to be at some swanky fashion show with all the greatest labels in the world being paraded down the, the thing, and turn to one of the great writers or journalists or creators of those things and say, Hey, this is amazing. What do you think about this? And hear them say, You know, uh, of course this course is what my life's all about, but really, none of it makes sense except for the fact that I know Jesus. And I love all this, but it's what it is. But what I love is it gives me a chance to talk to all these po- folks about Jesus. Does that not change the way we look at things? Hey, how do you handle the celebrity of all these big films you've been making? God, it's a little bit distracting, obviously. You you, you don't know who really likes you because you're you. But really, what I see it as, is a great way for me to have credibility to talk to people about what's way more important. If you thought that role, that movie was great, you should see what it looks like when you walk with the one who created life. And see, this this goes into every aspect of your life. The scientist who says, Yeah, it was a big deal. I mean, who knew? You know, mapping the human genome. But had that little old lady not asked me back when I was a physician, before I got my PhD and started doing research full time, if I was comfortable with the fact that I was gonna die someday, as comfortable as she was, looking at a situation that I couldn't cure as her physician, and it hit me between the eyes that I had no answer for her. That changed everything. So mapping the human DNA was awesome, but only so that I could serve God's purposes. You See the power of this. There's no place that it's off limits to us. So why should we let any place be off limits to God? Because where we are, we bring him with us. Discuss this stuff with your spouse, with your family, in a life group, with mentors and friends. Reflect on an affirmation like this. I focus on God and his priorities for my life. Let that be your simple affirmation. I focus on God and his priorities for my life. Hey, what makes you tick? What's your philosophy of life? What do you believe? Well, if I was going to sum it up, I guess I'd say I focus on God and his priorities for my life. What? What does that mean? Well, if you want, I'll tell you about it. See, we will thrive and grow by being single-minded in Christ. We will thrive and grow by being single-minded in Christ. Lord Jesus, I pray that would be us. Every one of us here, no matter where we are on that journey, no matter what our highest aspirations might be, our biggest dreams, our deepest regrets, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we will thrive and grow by being single-minded about you. And I pray this in your high and holy name. Amen. Well, as we continue and wrap up worship, uh, this is a time of offering. That is to open your heart and your mind to God. Open your hands to God, literally or just figuratively. Open your mind to him. Open your heart to him. As the music, you know, just flows over you, as you participate, perhaps by singing, as we sit, as, as we stand, as we raise our hands, as we, as we just sit silently, whatever, it's the time of offering. Offer yourself to the Lord and let your prayer be something along the lines of, Lord, show me how to continue in single-mindedness with you.
5: Call me out upon the waters, the great unknown, what feet may you fail And there I find you in the mystery, in oceans deep, my faith will stand. your name and keep my eyes above the waves when oceans rise my soul will rest in your surrounds me you've never failed and you won't start now so I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves when oceans arise my soul will rest in your we mm-hmm.
4: an invitation to join Jesus on the journey. Wherever you are in that journey, uh, renew your commitment to walking with him on it. Uh, stay focused on him. Uh, look within yourself and see what you're learning and, and, and wrestling with. Look to him to see the answer and the response that he gives you as you ask him to meet you at those places of brokenness or give you confidence in those places of insecurity or give you a sense of perspective in those places where you're succeeding highly and you're a little bit nervous about how you might handle it. In any case, and in all cases, he loves you more than you can ask or imagine. So walk with him in full confidence. He's taking you someplace really good. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us all, that is, shining his glory on us, that we might reflect it everywhere we go, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father,